What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, everyone. Before we get started with today's show, we wanted to tell you about Blue Wire Hustle, a brand new program where you can host your very own podcast here at Blue Wire. Or if you want to host a podcast and just don't know where to get started, Hustle's also a great program to help make your ideas come to life. For only $15 a month, part of the program will be receiving personal cover art, Q&As with Blue Wire's top podcasters, etc., etc., to apply, go to bwhustle.com slash join. Look in today's description box for this episode and find out more, but that's bwhustle.com slash join. Hey, flamethrowers, Amira here, and I am so pleased to be joined today in conversation with Benji Hart. Benji is a Chicago-based author, artist, and educator. Their essays and poems have appeared um, all over the place. Uh, Teen Vogue, Time Magazine Advocate also has their words. Um, They've led workshops for organizations and academic institutions. Uh, They are uh, activists. They work with many groups um, in Chicago, like National Bailout, Um, and... Is cur- are currently creating uh, new work, I hear, um, and basically is one of the illest people I know. So I had to call Benji up to ask them to join me on Burn It All Down to talk about um, abolition and the ways in which it applies to sports and helps us think through sports. And I see this as very much a part of thinking about Black futures, Black futures in sports, as well as in other institutions, and what does it mean to dream radically? And it's really the only conversation I wanted to have for Black History Month, which is um, a month that a lot of people use to kind of pause and look backwards. You know, I spend a lot of time in the past, and so I wanted to use this opportunity to connect with Benji and and look to the future a little bit. So Benji, welcome. Welcome to Burn It All Down. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited and honored to be here Um, I want to start off by saying I know nothing about sports, so I feel a little (laughs) sheepish, a little embarrassed being here, Um, but I'm also really excited and honored, A, because I think I have a lot to learn. I know I have a lot to learn from you, um, but I'm excited to learn more specifically about your analysis on um, sports and its intersections with all these other um, spheres and and, and struggles because that's something that is not my area of expertise. Um, but I'm also really excited to talk about abolition in this context because I don't think these are conversations that come together um, explicitly all that often. So I'm really excited to, to be here and part of this conversation. I'm overjoyed. And, I, and part of the reason why I'm overjoyed in full disclosure is because Benji is like fam to the, the biggest level. Like literally we grew up together. Um, and I think that one of the extraordinary things about that and about like these familial relationships um, is that we have seen 
many iterations of each other and also watched, you know, ourselves go on these different pathways to bring us to this moment in which like, I feel like I'm really excited to have a conversation with you about how like our worlds can kind of think through each other and, and combined and collide. Um, so I am just super hyped. Same. I'm so excited. Alrighty. So yeah, I had this thought a while back, actually, you know, we think structurally all the time. We think about things that we want to burn to the ground and then what we want to rebuild in its place. But oftentimes a lot of the things we are talking about are kind of reform actions or kind of baby steps that leave systems intact that continue to exploit and harm and extract from people. And so I wanted to like actually think through and talk about abolition um, in the realm of sports, in the way that we're seeing it talked about with criminal justice and, and some other things. And so that's kind of where I want to start. If you could tell me um, how you define abolition and how you came to kind of abolition work that you do. Absolutely. Um, Amira and I grew up together. Um, so I, I'm originally from Amherst, Massachusetts. Um, that's where I spent most of my young life. Um, and speaking for myself, um, growing up as a light-skinned, middle-class uh, child of professionals in a college town. Um, I really did not have much personal contact with the police um, and in fact come from a police family, have family members who are officers. Um, and so I had a, a very kind of traditional but also limited understanding of what the policing system even was, what it looked like who it impacted and targeted because I actually hadn't had a lot of personal contact with it. Um, and it was the summer that I turned 18 um, and I was staying with friends of ours in the Bronx, New York um, that I was first arrested and first um, violently targeted by the police. Um, and that was really a life altering experience for me, particularly as uh, a middle-class black person who, who did not grow up in the Bronx, did not grow up in the neighborhood where I was staying and visiting folks. Um, and seeing how drastically different other people's experience of the police system was from my own. Um, and the violence of that first interaction and kind of the arbitrary violence of that first interaction um, was what really made me start to reevaluate um, what, what is the system actually designed to do? Um, because clearly the things that I've been taught or told it does, it's not uh, actually responsible for achieving. Um, and that's really kind of set me on the path to learning more about not just the, the current uh, iteration or the current nature uh, and layout of the police and prison system now, but also its roots and its history, why it was created, uh, during what political moments and climates it took the shape that we are now all currently navigating. Um, and that little by little, it did not happen all at once, but little by little, um, really led me uh, down the road to abolition and to um, not just the belief in the necessity of the total uh, destruction, the total burning down of the police, prison, and military systems, um, but that the, but that those are actually achievable goals. That those are actually that's actually possible for us to achieve, um, and that there is historic precedent um, for for those demands and for that vision of a, a police and a prison free world actually being achieved. Like, I think that part of it, to me, speaks to thinking through the ways we interact and associate with these systems. Um, and I think that applies to sports in the sense of, like, a lot of times 
we are recipients of sports in certain ways that tie us to family. Like we've been watching sports with family members and we have fuzzy feelings around it, right? Or you, you know, have played sports, whatever. And I think that it's one of those things that until you have that experience like you had in the Bronx with a sporting institution in a variety of ways, whether it's you saw the Ray Rice tape or you notice something different in how commentators talk about Serena's body versus other tennis players or whatever it was, right? And I think that's what it speaks to is like there's something and there's something, you know, flamethrowers that have brought you to the podcast. There's something that has gone off to say there's more to it here. But the thing that I really wanted to kind of then pick up on what you said which is that this is possible and I think that that's so important because like I talk about how hard it is for me to even imagine like right now I'll be honest I can't even imagine next week like 2020 has especially warped my sense in time where like it's hard for me to think about and concretely plan for like a week out so in that vein it's really hard sometimes to imagine what a better future could be like. And, you know, we've been talking on the show about like, does anything any even matter anymore? Especially as sports have kind of gone on through a global pandemic, it feels like nothing matters and it can rob you of hope or of that just like persistence to push back. And, um, but one of the things that, that you had raised, um, before to me when I was kind of thinking through the ways that like I felt like well how how can you imagine these futures and one of the things you said is like well abolition already exists right in some of these institutions uh we were talking in the context of of a, a institution of higher education and you pointed out like abolition already exists there over uh, a conversation of campus police. So I was wondering if you would articulate that for us about like the ways in which abolition already exists in certain places, because I think that this is also something that we see and we know in sports and the way you frame it, like all of a sudden made it real for me. Mm. I appreciate that word. So yeah, and also to to wrap up question one and lay the foundation for question two, um, I would define abolition as uh, both a uh, political philosophy, um, but also an organizing strategy. It's not just a theory, it's also um, a lens for uh, identifying and engaging in uh, principled and material political struggle. In other words, it's not just an idea or a theory that we talk about, it's actually something that guides um, demands, actions, and strategy for all kinds of social movements that are happening currently, but certainly um, the movement for Black lives and certainly the fight for um, Black liberation. Um, and it is the belief and the understanding that the police and prison system is fundamentally uh, rooted in anti-Blackness, rooted in capitalism, rooted in patriarchy, rooted in basically every toxic system and values that you can name, you can think of, um, and that it is that way by design. It was created to uphold racial hierarchy. It was created to protect property. It was created to further colonialism and imperialism um, at the expense of women, at the expense of trans people, at the expense of indigenous people, black people, immigrant people, and that the only way for there to be sweeping and intersectional liberation liberation for all oppressed people, all oppressed communities, is for those systems to be abolished and for different systems of public safety 
um, to take their place. And when we say different systems of public safety, we're also fundamentally talking about reimagining what is public safety. Um, and abolition really imagines public safety as not about control, not about policing, and not about punishment, but about uh, providing people with the basic resources they need to survive, um, making sure people are uh, protected and that communities are protected through uh, having access to resources, to housing, to education, to a thriving wage, to healthcare and mental health care, um, and that those are the things that actually curb harm, curb violence, um, and that punishment fundamentally does not, um, and that we have centuries of evidence to actually make that something we can say um, confidently and definitively. So abolition is twofold. It's about both um, destroying um, these harmful systems um, and the, the larger structures of violence and inequality like capitalism and imperialism that they protect and that they um, uh, make possible, enable, um, but it's also at the same time about imagining what is possible beyond them and in real time trying to build up and build out um, those alternatives. Um, and as you say, that can seem like a huge or a daunting challenge um, when in actuality there are all kinds of examples in our world right now to help us think through um, what a police and prison free community, what a police and prison free uh, neighborhood, what a police and prison free society can look like. Um, I think when we talk about like what are the concrete models or concrete examples currently um, that can help us envision abolition, um, I think the two primary places for us to look, which are both complicated examples, are one, oppressed communities. Um, how do communities that are targeted by law enforcement already uh, function in a way where they know when there is harm and when there is violence happening on a community level, law enforcement is not gonna be the one to step in and solve it. And therefore um, folks, be they undocumented folks, be they black folks, be they trans folks, um, already know they can't look to law enforcement and therefore are, are uh, coming up with their own alternatives and their own ways of dealing with harm and violence and creating accountability that don't rely on the police and prison system, um, which is like one conversation to have. And then I think the other side of that, which is what you were alluding to, is the fact that wealthy communities, white communities, um, elite private institutions, uh, uh, gated communities of all kinds um, are already functioning in many ways without police and prisons. Um, that when uh, wealthy people commit harm, when people with power and resources and means commit violence, the automatic assumption is not that the police need to be called. The automatic assumption is not that that person needs to go to jail. Um, there are all kinds of alternatives that are offered. Um, and, and that's often without even a discussion. Um, and again, both of these are complicated models because I would say um, while both of these are important examples or important lenses for us to think about a police and prison-free world, also both of them are not ideal. Um, and something Black feminists have said for a long time is that um, when we talk about uh, wealthy communities or white communities as examples of police and prison-free communities, we're not saying that's what we want to emulate. We're not saying we want every community to look like a wealthy white community, or we, we're not saying we want every neighborhood to look like a wealthy white neighborhood. We're saying the exact opposite, actually. Um, but, what we, but what the kernel is there that I think is important to tease out or to expand on is it's very often the same people saying that's impossible 
we can't abolish the police and prison system who themselves are actually living in a world without police and prisons, who themselves are actually very rarely coming into contact with the police and prison system. Um, and in fact, only or, or, or most commonly when they come into contact with it, it's because they're calling it on someone else or because they're using it to protect themselves and protect their property from Black folks, from poor folks, from uh, folks with disabilities, on and on and on. Um, but but I, I still think it's an important example um, because it exists, because we actually already have lots of examples of people using other mechanisms and other ways of creating accountability that aren't police and that aren't prisons. And then, of course, I think the next question is, are those effective and are those actually um, the methods that we're trying to emulate or uh, duplicate? Because in many ways, they're not. Again, like I'm not trying to say, yeah, the way wealthy white students are treated on a college campus when they commit harm, that's the way everyone should be treated. That's I, I don't believe that. Um, but at the same time, the examples abound of ways that people live their lives without the police and prison system and, and navigate harm and violence without the police and prison system. Absolutely. I mean, it's like when people were, were drawing the distinction between the way the Capitol Police um, and folks were not um, exacting force on the insurrectionists on January 6th, um, the clarifying part of it to your, you know, last point there was we're not asking you to shoot them. We're asking you to be cognizant of the fact that, like, don't shoot us the way you don't shoot them. Exactly. Um, one of the things that I want to point out um, is it's a very interesting way that sports played a role in kind of the rise of carceral politics in the 70s and 80s. Um, my good friend, Teresa Runsettler, um, past guest of the show, her, her next book is, is on this and she already has an article out about it where she looks at the rise of the NBA, especially in the seventies and early eighties and the way that these like really high profile, like black men, the way the league tries to discipline them for on court infractions, like the famous punch and stuff like that that sets up this idea of punitive response, right? And that continues in a very public way, this um, notion of like, this is how we keep Black folks in particularly in line, is we meet, we, we police everything, right? <laughs> and what the league did with that everything, which meant dress code on the court actions, off the course actions, et cetera, was attach fines and suspensions to all of it. And I think that that's one of the things that, you know, we talk about in the sports world a lot. And we talked about this in the context of COVID when the Blue Jays and other teams announced that the, the way they were going to try to keep players from breaking COVID protocols and stuff like that was to say, okay, well, we're going to fine you. And then if you break protocol again, we're going to call the police on you. Mm. And like, just like thinking about like an employer telling an employee, like the way we're going to make sure that you are doing what we say in terms of like what we think is going to best ensure your health and safety is by threatening you with A, the loss of a paycheck and B, with like calling the police. Um, and then we've also had these complicated conversations, especially around sexual assault in sports, when like leagues are handling it or like setting up their own justice system away from like a kind of court apparatus, right? Where it's like the biggest thing up for debate is like if they're going to get a four or six game suspension, even though 
the thing that is earning them the suspension is that they beat their wife black and blue. And we have documented evidence of that and like what to do with that. Mm. Um, And so I think that there's ways in which the sports world are already having conversations around policing, around um, imprisonment, around kind of punitive justice, like around um, certainly around restorative justice when it comes to sexual assault and like what these things look like. And, you know, my co-hosts of course are so on top of this and talk, you know, like somebody paid their due and like, why can't they get another job talking about Chris Doyle? Um, who's a coach at Iowa who like put multiple players in the hospital because of his tactics and then was like also super racist. And to get him out of Iowa, they paid him a severance package of $1.1 million. And then he was out of job for eight months before he got rehired in a bigger league. Right. And the way that um, the defense of this was like, oh, but he already suffered. Like he already paid his price. Like he already did this. And so like, I think that we are seeing these conversations in the sports world, but somehow they are like disconnected to the larger conversations, which is funny to me and why I bring up this history is because they've always been intersecting. Um, Because as we know that sports is like a hyper visible spot for a lot of these tensions to kind of get, center stage um i really like how you framed abolition as both a theory and also like an organizational tactic i think about this like brenda raises this question a lot about like what would feminist football football meaning soccer here what would feminist football look like and is it just like okay now we have like the women's world cup out of fifa but we already know that fifa is terrible right (laughs) we already know this about fifa then is feminist football really just including women within the system? What would it look like to like reimagine the game of football from a feminist standpoint? Like it wouldn't just be the same model. And that is a question in theory, but it's also a question that as we've seen, especially with football players in Latin America, um, it's also organizational tactic about like what is required um, in order to make that happen um, and what that looks like. But I think that, it also made me think of this conversation about like representation and we had this preceding the Super Bowl a few weeks ago about this like way that some of the teams involved in the game were being applauded because there were black coaches on the sidelines there was black there was women coaches there's a woman refing the game and um, I think the question that Bren posed in that episode was like does do we give a damn and we all resoundingly were like eh, like you know they're there but like that doesn't fundamentally change the fact that all of this is bullshit um and I think that I would love to talk to you about that kind of same idea of representation that we're seeing within the sports world right like having a black coach or having a, a, a woman athletic administrator stuff like that you know, we even, we highlight them sometimes on our torchbearers, but we also know, and we also talk about how, if we've just talked about how corrupt the NCAA is, having a woman who's in the NCAA doesn't actually fundamentally change the system. Um, and I think that there's very similar conversations happening, um, in terms of representational politics outside of sports. Absolutely. And I, I think that ties in, uh, to something that, I wanted to highlight too in some of what you just shared, since a lot of that history was new history to me. Um, I think uh, the, the examples of kind of punitive practices that you outline throughout sports history, I think is a, extremely important um, because it shows that policing 
you know, police departments and prisons and jails are not the only institutions that participate in policing. Um, and I think that's really important um, because, I mean, for any number of reasons, but something I really believe in my work and I'm trying to highlight more explicitly for people is that I actually don't think police and prison abolition is very, very radical. I think in, in, in a lot of ways, it's actually a really sensible and, um, and in, in, in some ways simple uh, strategy that actually is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the work that we have to do to actually dismantle racial capitalism, to actually dismantle white supremacy. There's so much beyond just abolition. Um, I, th I still think abolition is a very important starting place. And that's part of the reason I believe in it so deeply and I'm so invested in that fight. Um, but your examples are important because if we abolished police today, if we abolished prisons today, that in and of itself doesn't mean white supremacy is done. And that in and of itself doesn't mean um, that the systems of violence and harm and inequality that the police and prison system uh, protects and enables immediately go away um, when those protective buffers are taken away. Um, and I think your examples of the ways that these punitive measures in sports are unequal um, and that even when folks are engaging in what we could argue are non-carceral uh, solutions to dealing with uh, harm and violence, there is still deep embedded racism, deep embedded misogyny, deep embedded uh, homophobia and transphobia in terms of how those how those consequences are distributed, who has the power to distribute them, um, who gets punished for what. There's, there's still tons of harm and violence and racism happening there, even though technically a, a police department isn't involved or someone going to prison isn't involved. Um, there's still, as you say, an investment in punishment um, that is still inherently racist, sexist, homophobic, and, and all these other things. Um, and I think that's so important um, because coming out of 2020, defunding the police, conversations about abolition, conversations about reform and, and rethinking law enforcement and quote unquote mass incarceration are much more mainstream and much more popular now, which is a good thing. Um, but it also means that there's a, we have new organizing work to do in terms of clarifying, okay, but what does abolition actually mean? And what does a police and prison free world actually look like? Because we're not all in agreement um, about that. And, and many of these institutions, academic institutions, um, uh, even, even sporting institutions that are now adopting more of the language of abolition or the language of restorative justice or transformative justice, these kind of buzzwords that come out of movement that are more and more being adopted by uh, the institutions that they were originally created in opposition to um, means that we now have to do the work of clarifying what those terms actually mean. They become more mainstream and they become more acceptable, but there's tons of organizing left to do now in terms of actually clarifying what that means. Because if, it, if, if per your point, if abolition means we're going to abolish the police department and then uh, the university will have its own police department, it's like, okay, then that's not abolition. It's like, okay, but then we're just changing who's doing the policing. We're not actually talking about fundamentally different structures of how we address harm and violence and inequality in our community. Um, and that's frankly to be expected, but it's an important reminder of how much work we have uh, left to do. And I think 
this ties back to your other question because I think one of the things we need to be vigilant against is institutions adopting our language and institutions adopting the language of movements um, to paint themselves as progressive. Um, and that goes hand in hand with these same institutions um, uh, essentializing identity um, to also protect themselves and to also uh, not just uh, not just make it look like they're doing work that they're not actually doing, but actually enabling uh, the same harmful patterns to continue. But now it's a black woman doing them, or now it's our first gay provost who's uh, you know supporting these awful policies that are actually harming a lot of our trans and queer students, you know, we can, it, it's also frankly predictable at this point. Um, but I think that's really important that these, these conversations about representation aren't just about um, the visuals of the, the queer athletes or the black coaches. Every deep playoff run starts with building an amazing team. Doing the same for your business doesn't take a room full of scouts. You just need Indeed. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Hate waiting? Indeed's US data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. Something I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because with virtual interviews, Indeed saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent all in one place. Indeed knows that when you're growing your business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why when you sponsor a job, you only pay for quality applications from resumes in our database matching your job description. Visit indeed.com slash blue wire to start hiring today. Just go to indeed.com slash blue wire. That's indeed.com slash blue wire. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed or the uh, women in leadership roles, it's actually about how those identities are used to mask the harm to women, the harm to black folks, the harm to trans and queer people um, and how that's on purpose. It's not accidental. Um, it, it's a strategy for actually allowing the harm to continue. Absolutely. And we're looking directly at Lori Lightfoot when we say this, just to be clear and explicit. We're Thank looking you so much. <laughs> This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? This is Shireen, and I have struggled with anxiety and depression in the past. I've often turned to counseling and therapy to help me through. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. And there's a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in many areas. But this service is available for clients worldwide. Flamethrowers, wherever you are, BetterHelp can help you. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get a timely and thoughtful response. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy, which may not even be possible in a pandemic anyway. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. 
It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit their website and read testimonials that are posted there daily. Visit betterhelp.com slash burn, that's better H-E-L-P, and join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they have started recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. Special offer for Burn It All Down listeners. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash burn. That's betterhelp.com slash B-U-R-N. This is so important because, like, this is something, like, I was just on a panel um, earlier today and somebody asked a question, um, like, how do we square the NFL commitment to racial justice with like the treatment of Kaepernick and I literally laughed I didn't mean to but I laughed because I was like what commitment to racial justice um because they like painted end racism in the in in the end zone right like that same idea of like the reappropriation of language and and not just language of symbol and this is a conversation we've had around kneeling right like when the whole team kneels along with Jerry Jones for a photo op, kneeling doesn't mean shit. Mm. Um, what kneeling was used to convey at this point, especially like if you were kneeling in opposition to the playing of the anthem because you were using this time to disrupt business as usual, and now what has become business as usual is having a whole team kneel before anthem, then like that action, that that gesture is just symbolically nodding right in a way and like take it or leave like if you're somebody who's like you know what when i see the national team kneel i know they mean black lives matter but it's like does is that what it means (laughs) like what like that's the uh that's the um value that people have assigned to it but in action in an operation it's not doing anything that's not that's not actually a commitment to anything that's right um except for touching your knee to the ground. Um, And I think that this is like one of the most important things about like watching closely after this, you know, we all know we've, the summer was a particular moment and then watching closely the actions of these sporting institutions in the wake of this, like one of the things that came out of the wildcat strike and collective organizing around not playing um, until some things were addressed around police brutality is that like, Miami-Dade County PD partnered with the Miami Heat and the Heat were like, yeah, we're going to we're going to invest in a training program for them to like learn how to not use force. And I was like, wait, so what you got from this moment when there was like very clear calls to like defund the police, what you got in this moment about police brutality is that you were going to give Miami-Dade PD that has a budget of over $800,000 more money. And, and it, it got swept up in this moment of like, look at all the good that teams around the league are doing for their quote unquote commitment to racial justice. And it's like, no, actually this being bundled in is like masking the ways to your point, Benji, that is not just 
decoration, but it's actually the ingredient of what's making this system keep going. That's exactly right. And I think it's important. Look at me. I know something about sports. I think it's also important to name, you know, in that theater or sort of in that moment, the role that Barack Obama played. Uh, speaking of black faces in high places and speaking of Look at folks you. from oppressed identity. See, I read the news. I read the news. <laughs> but if, on, <laughs> on a real tip, speaking of uh, folks with these identities who don't just, I love your analogy, don't just serve as decoration, but actually play a crucial, pivotal role in these moments of arbiters who actually allow the violence and allow the harm to continue. Um, for from my perspective as an outsider and someone who is rarely tuned into what's going in going on in the sports world to see first black women and then them being followed by black men um leading these calls that weren't just uh sim weren't just symbolic but were really actually posing a threat um to the league's ability to function and forcing um folks with incredible money and power inside of those institutions to uh, to take a stance and to actually be held accountable for, for where their money and power uh, actually originated. Some really radical and exciting things. The Wildcat strike was, I was like, we're on the verge of something here. Um, and for Obama to come in and say, no, what, what y'all need to do is form a social justice and equity committee, or, you know, I can't remember exactly what the phrase was, um, but for, for it to be, no, what we actually need to do is, is just find a secure location where we can just talk about this more and right the league can partner with police departments and do some anti-bias training it's like he actually played it, it was it was textbook actually um the way that he served as a powerful black voice to discourage other black people from from taking radical direct action which is what they were doing on their own which is what they're doing independently um and that was heartbreaking for me that was like we were on the verge of something incredibly powerful there and Obama played a very important role in stopping it from happening. Yeah, no, first of all, I'm proud of you. Um, second of all, you know, but I, I would have to say like, I don't think we were on the verge of something. Um, and I said at the time, and I stand by that now, which is the moment was really important because it showed the possibilities, mm. right? It was a window into the possibilities. Um, I think a lot of us got commissioned to write pieces on it like that Thursday and, and by Sunday it was over. Right. Um, but you know, I think for me, the reason why I say that is because one of the things that I have studied historically is how fast athletic activism is disrupted and how powerful the call to kind of like get back to work becomes and all of the various ways institutions will figure out, especially sporting institutions, how much can I give that still maintains power? Because right now the balance is, so, and, and this is why is because the balance of power is so there's such a disparity between athletic labor and ownership and management and sports media. There's such a disparity and it's, you know, obviously ridiculous, which is why in that moment it was really inspiring because you're like, yes, this is what ha like if everybody just stops playing, look, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, but at the same time, it's like 
it very quickly becomes like, okay, how, how much can we give? Like we have a million cookies over here and y'all are fighting for crumbs. It takes nothing to take one of our cookies, crumble it up and toss it. And y'all are so busy watching those crumbs fly towards you thinking you're getting something. You don't notice we still have all the cookies. And to me, that has been the story of how athletic activism has been neutered over time. Whether it's early black college protests in the 70s that then, you know, influenced the scholarship to become a one-year renewable thing. So your job became a lot more precarious, right? Or it's the way in which, um, you know, media covers it or whatnot. But for me, like in that moment, I was like, absolutely, you're on the verge of something. And I also knew that that night, people were already on the phone talking about endorsement deals and sponsors and don't you don't want to lose this. They're pointing mm-hmm. to people who have lost stuff, who have been disposed because of their actions, who have become warnings. Colin Kaepernick is but one, right? Like Craig Hodges, Mahmoud Abdul-Rauf are still here. They're still here facing these consequences. And I think that's, you know, when I talk about like feeling like, how do we even imagine this? I think that imbalance to me is what feels so disheartening sometimes. Mm. Is that like, even in these moments where I feel like we've walked up to the precipice of like a new chapter, I'd say this year over any other years, I feel like there's been more strides taken I think there's been a blueprint. The WNBA certainly has laid a blueprint. And and part of that blueprint, though, has been that they've reached out to scholars and grassroots activists, right? That said, like, hey, we have a particular platform, but it's only fortified by these other connections. And to me, like, that, that, that is the blueprint because it's about connecting people power in a way that can disrupt these other things. And it, and it matters to your point about like who you call, right? Like who you get on Zoom with. The WNBA didn't call Obama. I mean, they talked to Michelle at one point, but they talked to Kimberly Crenshaw, right? Like they talked to grassroots activists on the ground in Atlanta when they were mobilizing the vote. But I think that the other part of that is it can't just be one call. That's right. And so to me, it's like, what do we do? Like, even taking those moments as like, this is amazing time. And then also not feeling, not personally disappointed, but also understanding the conditions in which people are laboring, laboring under was like, I can get the various, I wrote a bitch media piece about this. Like, I don't think abstaining from play it looks the same across the board. I think the WNBA has fought tooth or nail to be able to get onto the court. Their abstention of playing is actually removing themselves from a place where people don't want them in the first place. Hmm. And so I don't actually think seeding that is the same effect, right, as when the NBA would do it. That's fascinating. You know, and so I think that that to me is like part, you know, when we think about these institutions, we think about the complexities, like, and this is the way when we think about, you know, we talked about intersectionality, we talked about that, but like, this is the way to me that it comes to the fore. That's powerful. That's beautiful. I really, I really love what you're saying about uh, athletes and organizers working together. Um, Because I I totally agree that that's when the most powerful and the most exciting moments um, have happened. 
in the last couple of years um, is not when not when uh, athletes were looking to um, institutions or people with power, people above them um, to kind of give them directive, but when they were looking to folks on the ground, looking to poor and working class uh, Black folks, looking to activists actually doing work on the ground to give them their directives, um, the most incredible things have happened as a result of that. Um, and I think Kaepernick is a, a complicated example of that because I know he's been glorified in ways that other people haven't. Um, and uh, gotten shine and gotten credibility that other people have not gotten, um, even though I know he's also following the lead of a lot of athletes before him. But something I think he has gotten right is uh, A, talking to organizers on the ground and specifically talking to Black women organizers on the ground, um, and B, using his platform uh, to, to pose a threat. Um, and we all know that he's he's gotten a lot. He, he's actually lost things as a result of that. And I think uh, folks with power and privilege, even Black folks with power and privilege, even women with power and privilege, um, like that's something that should actually, that's something we should actually be prepared to do. Um, and, and I appreciate your talking about sort of the initial, the, the, the chapter opening with the Wildcat strike, that it was just the beginning of something, but not necessarily. Uh, it could could have gone a lot of different ways and clearly went one particular way. Um, but I think I think that's an important thing that I'm interested sort of in learning more about is like, um, yeah, like what are people prepared to give up? Because I think that's like a huge question in all organizing or 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 all uh, all efforts that actually pose threats to these incredibly powerful, incredibly wealthy, incredibly venerable and entrenched institutions, there's always going to be pushback and the institution has so much more power to harm us um, than we do to harm it. Um, so what are we willing to, what are we willing to give up um, in that fight and what are we willing to withhold knowing what the consequences could be? Um, and I'd love to hear about that from the sports perspective or the, or the yeah. athlete's perspective. I love that. You know, I, I was um, more coming up on the anniversary of the fight of the century, which is um, Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier, March 8, uh, 1971, which was huge, of course, because Muhammad Ali, the sacrifice he made when he refused to submit to the draft for the Vietnam War um, was so vast is like very hard to even contend with now because we know he comes back and then he like he has all this success and we forget that for three years like his belt was taken away his livelihood was taken away he was imprisoned right like these like with a kind of looking backwards we can see that it's going to work out more or less for him but at the time how does one know that like that is that is something you know that's really really powerful and so the fight of the century took on a lot of power because in his absence in those 3 years Joe Fraser had come up had gotten the heavyweight title had had become this prolific fighter and this was pitting two heavyweights who had not been defeated yet together and Muhammad Ali wrote then helped write the narrative himself he said the only people who are backing Joe Frazier are, you know, uh, the KKK, town council people, the police, and the military. Like, he was very clear, right, in terms of drawing sides. So it was like this kind of big fight. But I think about this in 
that question about sacrifice, like, you know, Maya Moore stepping away to work on on criminal justice reform and to help free Jonathan Iros from prison, right? Uh, the WNBA players like Renee Montgomery and Natasha Cloud, who, who opted out of the season. Um, I think about this, of the people who give up little things daily in ways that we can't see because they are rendered that disposable by the sport, right? And I think mm. about that sacrifice mm. a lot, especially for people more precarious, especially for people who are are women, who are trans people in sport, um, who are already at the margins of the sporting sphere, um, where it's very easy to kind of grind them up and discard them and nobody even knows. But I think the other part of this conversation that that touched on, because, and this is why it also made me think of Muhammad Ali, I always push athletes to be seen as laborers, Right. And, you know, now we have a lot of kind of work coming out about sports as labor. Me and Brenna are working on a project about this. And there's certain things we know obscure this, like the number of dollars at the end of the paycheck for some athletes, of course, obscure this. Also, this idea that it's like it's leisure, it's recreation, it's fun or whatever also obscures this in certain ways. Um, But I also think about it in terms of like you mentioned, you know, you actually have police in your family and things like that. And I think about this like complicated relationship about thinking through militarism and policing and like athletes in terms of like cannon fodder in a sense and the forced choices that people make when they are trying to figure out like how to get into institutions that are telling them they're going to take care of them institutions that prey particularly on black and poor people and, you know, my husband's family are all Philly cops um, or they were athletes or they were athletes who became Philly cops. Right. And I think like that connection between, you know, being being in communities in which you're told that your way out of this community, because there's no there's no way to think about like actually uplifting or like demanding resources or, you know, opportunities within that community. The only path you're given is an exit plan. Um, and if that exit plan is labeled military, police, athlete or maybe entertainer, then to me, I think, especially when we're talking about black folks, it's interesting to think about the entanglement of those three things when we see and like for us like in the sports world we see this intersection a lot in terms of who's policing the games um who's hired you know to police these games we see this in the pay for play military um hyper americana uh anthem not just the anthem the like reunions and things like that all of these things are baked into the spectacle and sometimes when I'm looking at it and there's so many players who are like when they were kneeling and and like the trolls were coming after them were saying like my dad's a cop or my mom's in the air force or x y and z and I and I thought about like what does it look like to look at the NFL for instance as an institution that we can see as tangled up with these other kind of forced choices, especially given what we know about CTE, what we know about brain trauma, what we know about the way that especially affluent white kids are leaving the sport because of how much is wrecking the body. What we know about the lawsuits being brought by former players who are saying, hey, you've now abandoned us and we have medical bills and ailments and yes. Vincent Jackson just died and how many more people are going to die super young after they've had a career in the NFL? And I think that's just 
is but one example. But, you know, so for me, I think about the intersection of these three things in very particular ways. And I was wondering if you also had ways where you thought through this kind of intersection of sports and these military systems and police systems. Yes, I think there's so, so much to unpack there. Um, I feel like there's a book for you in this because it's not going to be my book. (laughs) But the fact that Kaepernick was originally kneeling um, in the midst of this patriotic nationalist spectacle that itself was actually paid for by the military, Um, that, that the military gives tens of millions of dollars to the NFL, to other um, sporting associations for these exact spectacles. Um, I think for athletes to highlight, to, to hijack um, those spectacles to make a political statement on the military's dime is actually quite brilliant. Um, so I just want to highlight that as, as good organizing because um, the, the, the appropriation, as you've pointed out to, of that initial act, of that initial statement, I think loses um, some of the ingenuity that, that it began with, some of the creativity that it began with. Um, but I think these connections really abound. And um, I think a lot about uh, the, the police in my family are also athletes. And I've not actually in my head made that connection before. Um, but I think about the way that um, institutions, even on a college level, but certainly on a, a professional sporting level, um, really deify and uh, put athletes up on this pedestal that gives them incredible visibility and power and social importance. Um, And when you get to the professional level, a lot of money and a lot of resources um, that it makes it hard to see that as like an oppressed person, like someone who's making $20 million a year and owns multiple homes. It's like really hard to see that person as exploited. Um, But I think things like the Wildcat Stripe show how quickly these people that in our eyes have all this clout and power and platform, how quickly they become workers um, and how quickly their efforts are put down um, when they stop playing their position and when they stop playing their role. Um, And I think there's a complicated connection to police there. Um, And I say this as someone who, you know, the police officers in my family or the former police officers in my family are all black, are all poor and working class people. Um, that participation in the military and participation in law enforcement are, I want to tread carefully, but I think there is a connection there about sort of the way those positions are deified um, and held up as the epitome of public service and, uh, you know, the the folks that are like holding our communities together um, and that there's a lot of pomp and circumstance and Uh, romance romance and in some cases resources in other cases the illusion of resources um when you are an when you are an officer or when you are a soldier you know you you got this equipment that's many thousands of dollars sometimes many millions of dollars that you're operating you know you have access to an incredible amount of resources um and then and then that feeling of importance that feeling of uh of romance disappears when you're a vet, um, disappears when you're no longer uh, the star athlete. Um, You know, when you have PTSD from serving in a war or when you are, uh, when you have brain trauma from how many times you've been tackled or 
Um, it, it's complicated for me to talk about police as exploited people because I receive so much violence from the police, but I know from having family members that are police, um, the ways that, that that system has taken advantage of them and, and folks who actually needed help, folks who actually needed sort of resources and support um, to deal with their trauma actually were just given a gun and were like, here, you know, take out your trauma on folks with disabilities, take out your trauma on poor people who are, uh, you know, stealing from the store. Um, and, and the complicated ways in, in, in which I think the police system and the military system, and I wouldn't be surprised um, if you had some examples from the sporting world, um, actually takes advantage of people's trauma, takes advantage of people's uh, a lack of access to resources to, uh, to woo them into the system that tells them it's caring for them and then is ultimately exploiting them. Oh, absolutely. And the way that like, I think you just framed it too, is like, we know within these systems, there's still these levels of power, right? So like, we know that black and brown people are on the front lines more often. We know that, you know, there's, there's multiple, uh, you know, marginalized officers who have a lot of internal trauma. And then, like you said, but then the stuff is, is directed outwards. And I think that you see that in sports in particular ways, because like, like you said, like the example of like really well-paid athletes is like, they take up a lot of our vision, mm. but generally like when we're thinking of athletes, we're talking about like Olympians right now who uh, postponing the Olympics for a year, like fundamentally, like really, you know, there's a, there's a young woman in Jersey who's like cleaning houses to sustain this year. Right. Because in the Olympics, it's like your, your opportunity to like earn is every four years. And if you miss it, it's gone. Um, college athletes are completely exploited and get no compensation, right? And so there's like all of these degrees to it. But what I think about what that reminded me of, and my colleagues who study this um, more closely would be better attuned to this, but it, what it reminded me of when you're talking about it is the kind of sense of like access or resources or, or whatever is given to like, say football players on college campuses that when they're working through something or whatever, the institution is pretending to care by throwing stuff at that, whether it's tutors or girls or whatever. And what we know and what we've seen through harm that's enacted in those spaces is that the is that women who have been raped, right, have just become like disposable within this. And that they've like redirected actions of people outwards, like towards other marginalized folks instead of inwards to the institutions that's creating these circumstances. Um, and whether it's sexual assault or, um, you know, the ways in which the institution will cover for somebody that is um, hurting people until all of a sudden they're not valuable anymore, right? Um, but I thought about this, like we had a, another conversation about how being precise about what we mean by harm, which is like all that is hurtful is not actually causing the harm. It might be hitting you where the harm is, but what becomes really important is like, how can we be precise about what is harmful and what is hurtful in order to actually address harm? And I think that sometimes we see that within, in sporting spaces a lot where, what catches our attention is what's hurtful and the conversation being centered on the hurt 
actually obscures the roots of the harm. And I think about that, like with what you just said, when like, you know, like people are like, we're not dealing with your trauma, but like, here's a gun, right? Is like what the, the trauma and the way that that institution has created that trauma are the roots, right? The institution itself is the roots, but we focus then on the harm. And I think that um, I wanted to ask you, what was it about sports for you that always felt as a place that you're like, I don't know, I don't fuck with that. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I'm wondering, right? Because sports feel so omnipresent that I'm wondering like what, um, if you've ever like considered your relationship with sports and like why it's like not a thing for you. I actually think it's a really, I actually think it's a good place in the conversation to discuss that because I think it has everything to do with masculinity for me, um, which is also another place where police, prisons, the military, and sports uh, intersect with one another. And and I think another reason why there's lots of overlap um, in these conversations and in these institutions um, because of the ideals of masculinity that they all uphold and, and the ways that they encourage and then protect people who are um, committing kind of masculinist forms of harm or, or toxic masculine forms of violence, like sexual violence, um, the ways that police, the ways that prison personnel, military personnel, um, and in certain cases, athletes are all engaged in that behavior um, in a way that is sometimes encouraged, sometimes actually like part of the job, part of the profession, um, and is certainly um, protected. Certainly folks are protected from the consequences, as you say, so long as they are seen as valuable, so long as protecting them is valuable to the institutions that they represent. Um, I think is another really important, again, we could do like a whole episode just on that, I'm sure. Um, But I have such early memories as a young, you know, I didn't have the language at the time, but a young queer, gender non-conforming person. I just had so many uh, early, some of my earliest memories of bullying, of ridicule, of it being so, of of being gendered, first of all, as a boy, um, and then it being so clear that I did not belong with the the other boys um, was sports. Um, You know, sports was one of the first places that I was gender segregated. Um, because I never wanted to be around boys when I was little. I hated boys. They hated me. We didn't get along with each other. I got bullied all the time. And so sports, I think of as A, enabling the bullying because I had to be around boys. We were separated by gender. So I always had to be around boys, which is like my worst nightmare. Um, but B, that the the competitiveness was celebrated and dominating other people was celebrated. Um, and physical strength and hurting other people um, was encouraged and celebrated. And that was just not who I was as a young person. And I was so often the target of the people who had the ability to dominate, who had the ability um, to enact force on others and, and sports being a place where that was like deemed acceptable and often even encouraged. It was just like a recipe for bullying for me. Um, and it honestly, I, the first time I ever remember enjoying sports was in, uh, high school PE actually. Um, cause I like realized 
that I actually was good at some sports and um <laughs> and it was funny to be like a junior or a senior in high school and be like oh I kind of like basketball I kind of like soccer um and I I, I low-key like gaming on straight people that was like the fun part I was like you think you about to beat me <laughs> but you're not <laughs> you thought you fucking thought but it took me a really long time to get there because for so long that was like some of the some of the worst places where I was targeted for for bullying for harassment and for just like mistreatment in general like please let PE class be over so I can go back to a place where I can like carve out a safe space for myself and gather the people around me who will protect me because the locker room is not where that is happening you know yeah no thank you so much for sharing that um it's so interesting to me uh you know, I, I recognize and I honor and, and at some points witness like that articulation of sports um, and, and how, what that the meanings the site meant for you. And one of the things that we track the way that people inhabit sporting spaces that have similar experience like you did that like contain all this toxicity. And then the way like people even people who have been harmed within sporting spaces like find something akin to freedom or liberation within it um and or at least a very very um kind of liberatory sense of expression and those are in some of the most progressive kind of uh uh gender rules that that guard that sport that really disrupts it really or um i'm thinking about zoros the the gay mexican football team that formed their own league to uh push back on homophobia in the sport and create a space for that trans powerlifter here at Penn State who talked about um, powerlifting being a site of, of community formation that was really, really important, you know, or, or um, I'm thinking about like uh, many of our friends of the show, um, native runners, uh, shout out to Jordan and, and folks who are running for the land and like using these um, spaces of movement to also like uh, raise awareness for missing and murdered indigenous women and to talk about native history and to um, claim that space. And so for you, what did become a very important space, like sports has for some people, is performance art. To me, like for me, I got the same thing out of performative spaces as I did athletic spaces. Like mm. they were both healing for me in in because they created family mm. which you know, which you know is like my original wound so mm. for me both sites were like incredibly sustaining and for you performance art certainly has been that site That's right? right and so i would love to end with with just like giving you space to tell us like what you got going on or or you know in what ways do you think of that art form and that performance as um you know a pivotal tool um for both self and and perhaps larger projects of of freedom making and and of liberation the the flip that i offer to that is that i did when i was 16 started voguing and it became in a lot of ways like my first passion like the first love of my life in a lot of ways um and the ballroom scene is incredibly competitive, can be incredibly <laughs> toxic, can be incredibly uh, just like people don't, people do not necessarily treat each other well. Um, so it's, it's like a, actually in some ways a very similar environment of 
there's there's the tight knit family that can form um, that's so beautiful and powerful. And also there's fierce competition um, that that isn't always healthy. I believe I believe in healthy competition and unhealthy competition. And like I haven't walked a ball in at least three years now. Um, and a big part of that was like, I'm tired. <laughs> I'm tired of the, like, like I, I, the, the competitive part of sports that didn't appeal to me is the same uh, competitive part of ballroom that was never actually the draw and never actually the appeal. Um, so, I, so all this is to say, um, I get in the same breath, I get how people can glean really different things from the same space because ballroom for me was the, the competition and the winning was never the most exciting part for me. It was the, the, the building of the craft and the celebrating of other folks' craft and the building of family. Um, so I feel, I really feel you sort of like naming that as what you get from sports or have gotten from sports. I love that. I love that too. Um, and in closing, what things am I working on right now? It's actually really nice to talk with you um, and all this shared history we have in the arts um, because I'm, I'm working on a new performance, a new uh, single uh, or solo piece, solo performance. And um, it incorporates so much of the, so much of my early loves. Um, the piece is called World After This One, and it's looking at Vogue, Bomba, and gospel music as uh, three examples of Black art forms that uh, draw on the materials of the present to imagine liberated futures. Um, and for me, the whole piece is actually a complication of uh, sort of the, the, the Audre Lorde quote, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. Um, in a lot of ways, I'm kind of examining the ways that Black people have actually always used the master's tools in complicated ways, um, but have subverted them, have uh, rooted them in, uh, in their own experience rather than the experience that introduced them to those tools, um, and just sort of generally um, trying to rethink about um, how we understand Black people's relationship to the master's tools, um, but also how Black people have always been thinking about impossible futures um, and, and imagining worlds that seem unimaginable um, to folks outside of the Black experience. Mm. I'm so excited about that because like you said, like it goes back to what we started talking about at the beginning, which is like, how do you imagine these radical futures or not so radical futures, sensible futures um, and futures when we, you know, are sustained and we're loved. And like, you know, I think that part of why I want to have this conversation with you um, is because we are family and like we talk about family and the way we found um family in various spaces but also that family is hard and family is complicated and family does not mean easy and warm and, and safe and loving all the time it means a lot of different things and for me it was like what does it look like to have a conversation that's complicated um and that isn't sound bites and that is like actually trying to parse out some of the ways that um, military and policing and sports collide and then also some of the ways that we can think through um, and th think past moderation or think past reform and think more toward like what does it mean 
to not just burn it all down in theory, but as an organizational tactic, right? To borrow yes. a page from the way you framed it. Yes. And and I couldn't think of uh, another better person to have that conversation with and to go into it knowing and feeling love and feeling safe and feeling like we can get into this, even though you're like how you said at the top, like, just let me tell y'all, I don't know about sports. So like, this <laughs> is, and I think like, that's it though. It's like your willingness to still join me in conversation where we both are like a little bit outside of our comfort zones, but willing to do this work and have this dialogue to me is the essence of like, literally like to me models what for me is like the communication towards these goals towards a mat like for me the beginning of imagining um you know futures and I talked about how I can't even see past next week like I realized as we've been talking now for an hour and some change is that at the end of this I feel better than I did an hour ago about what it looks like to envision these things. And that's a testament to you, but also I think to be able to have these conversations. So I really appreciate you taking the time. I just appreciate you in general. Um, Please, 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 y'all, please check out Benji. Um, You can find them on Twitter at RadFag um, or on their website at BenjiHeart.com. Um, Also on Insta and Facebook, all the things, of course. Um, But... Thank you again for joining us here on Burn All Down. We will certainly uh, be keeping an eye on you. Of course, I will be in touch because you didn't, I didn't even make you sing. And so therefore, oh, I will, bless. of course, have to have you back so you can... Because <laughs> <laughs> you, y'all know that I can't hold a tune at all. And so that means that I make everybody else who can sing, sing because like, hello, compensate me. So um, I love you. Thank you so much for joining me here on Burn It All Down love you too a pleasure thank y'all so much for having me